0: And as you may have heard uh, earlier in the service, our speaker today is uh, Kevin Teasley. Kevin is a graduate of uh, Covenant Seminary and actually a classmate of Richard's. Uh, Kevin has served with RUF for many years. He was a campus minister at Tennessee Tech and also Wake Forest. Now he's working in the national office of RUF in uh, development and fundraising for that ministry. And so we're glad to have uh, Kevin with us today. Uh, thank you, Kevin. We're, thank you for bringing us the word. Good, good morning. Uh, good to, it's good to be with you today, and thank you for having me. And actually, uh, I'm sure you all remember, but I preached here back in the late 90s. <laughs> um, as he said, I was the—y'all um, didn't laugh at that like I kind of thought you would, but— um, but uh, I, di- I actually did probably several times. Um, I was a RUF campus minister for six years at Tennessee Tech back in 1996. And, um, you know, from 1996 to 2002, uh, I, I was in Cookville. And uh, my wife and I, I graduated from Covenant Seminary, moved to Cookville, Tennessee to start what at that time was the 30th RUF ministry in the country and um, at Tennessee Tech. And um, it's just amazing to think now we're on gosh, well over 150, and um, it's just a pleasure to be here, as he mentioned, and then I I left uh, Tennessee Tech uh, to go to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I started a new RUF ministry at Wake Forest University, I was there for 13 years, then in 2015, my wife, my family, we we relocated to Nashville, and uh, I work with the national office for RUF now, um, heading up the fundraising development efforts, you know, I don't know if y'all realize this, but every Every campus minister uh, with the RUF, um, every RUF intern, they're, they're 100% responsible f- to raise all the funds uh, for, the, for their ministries. And um, I, I did it for 19 years. And, um, and so uh, these men and women that are, that are doing this, RUF interns, the RUF campus ministers, they're just, you know, they're heroes of mine. And, um, and I, I just, uh, they believe in what they're doing so much that they're willing to go try to raise 100% of the money to do it. Like, that's amazing. Most people wouldn't touch that, you know? And so my hat's off to them. And also just to be able to say this to you, because I know that you support RUF a lot, and Will and, and his wife and the ministry you have been supporting RUF for a while now. And uh, so just to, get, to be able to stand in front of you and to just say thanks, because I know how much Will appreciates your support. And, um, and so just to be able to say thank you, because RUF, um, actually in 2023, RUF, we're having our 50-year anniversary. Um, it was started in 1973 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi at University of Southern Mississippi. And now to think we're on campuses, to go from Hattiesburg, Mississippi to New York University, Stanford. Um, I'm from Mississippi too, and I know all great things come out of Mississippi, okay? <laughs> and, uh, I, but I gotta preach, so I gotta stop talking about all this stuff. Um, and so, uh, but it's a pleasure to be here and to just say thanks for having me. I don't get to preach or teach as much as I used to, so this is a real this is a real privilege, and uh, and I'm honored to get to be here. As I was thinking about what am I gonna, what would I talk about today, about a month ago, I attended uh, a conference, and and it was a lot of people there. There were big screens around, and during one of the intermissions, they put a commercial for Legionnaire Ministries. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. It was started by uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul, and um, and the they did a little, he's, he has passed away now, and, but it was just like a 30 second, it was not a Legionnaire conference that I was at, but they were doing a little commercial blurb about Legionnaire Ministries, and all of a sudden I heard R.C. Sproul's voice, and I was just transported in my mind and in my heart to just one of the happiest times of my spiritual life. I was converted, uh, I became a Christian largely through RUF at Ole Miss back in 1990, and somehow got my hands on all these R.C. Sproul cassette tapes, hundreds of them. And, um, and it was just one of the greatest spiritually rich times of my life. And it, just his voice, you know, I just got taken back to that time and to this story. In 1996, when I moved to Cookville to start RUF there, um, it, was, it was that first year that I was there. And... Um, They were doing a Legionnaire conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. R.C. Sproul was speaking, and I took seven guys, seven students from Tennessee Tech. Um, We got in a a 15-passenger white 15-passenger van, got on I-40, drove seven hours. Me and seven guys to Charlotte, North Carolina, to go to this Ligonier conference to hear R.C. Sproul. And I can remember being in that van, driving to, to Charlotte, and just thinking, this is why I got into campus ministry right here. Because we're about to go listen to R.C. The theme of the conference was, was, uh, was the glory of Christ. And... Um, and we actually got a great shout-out from Dr. Sproul, as a matter of fact, and um, it's because he caught wind that seven got students from Tennessee Tech University had driven seven hours to go to Charlotte you know, to hear this, to, to be at this conference. And he, he stood up on stage and made a comment about it, and some really hilarious comment about seven bribes for seven brothers, and maybe these you know, made this big pitch. It was a funny moment. And, uh, and I got a shout-out from uh, R.C. Sproul. But what I remember, about that conference more than anything is him talking about this passage and bringing out what I would say is just one of the most beautiful motifs in all of scripture. And, and that's what I hope you're going to hear. I really just have one point, and I think it'll become clear to you as I talk. Um, where we pick up in 2 Samuel is, is Saul has died, where we pick up here, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And you would think that after Saul dies, that David would just simply ascend to the throne unhindered, okay? That's not what happens, okay? David does become the king of Judah, but there are some of Saul's men and followers left, um, including his son Ishboseth. And what happens is Ishboseth, Saul's son, Gets anointed as the king of Israel. And so again, David gets passed over as king, but what happens after that is just one of the darkest periods of of Israelite history. It's this incredible civil war, I mean, that that takes place. It's all this bloodshed and conflict and turmoil. I mean, it's just nasty stuff going on until finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, Ishbosheth is killed. And all of Israel gets united under David's kingship, OK? And it's at this point, something amazing happens, and, and it's just beautiful. And in Second Samuel chapter four, verse four, we get this really brief biographical introduction to this character named Mephibosheth. OK? He is the lame son of Jonathan, OK? Now, after Ishbosheth is killed, Mephibosheth says he's crippled in both feet. He becomes the only heir, the only surviving descendant of, Saul, of Saul's house and, or, and Jonathan's house, okay? He's the only one left. And um, we get introduced to him in chapter 4, okay? And a couple little background things. Um, there's this scene where David is on the run from Saul, okay? Because, you know, it's becoming more and more clear that David is the anointed one, that he's going to be king. And standard operating procedure back in that day, if there was any threat to your kingship, if there was any threat to the throne off with your head, like, I'm taking you out because I don't want any threats. And so Saul is pursuing just relentlessly. He's going after David. David's on the run. David is hiding out in this cave. And Saul and his men go into the cave to take a break. They don't know David's in there, okay? David's men, say, when Saul goes into that cave, he, David's hiding. David's men say, now's your chance, David. Get him. Let's take him out, okay? And you remember what David says if you know the story. He says, I'm not laying a hand on God's anointed. I'm not going to touch him. And so he lets him go. As he's walking out of the cave, David said, yells out at Saul says, Hey, Saul, you-hoo, <laughs> I could have killed you, but I didn't. And Saul's absolutely thunderstruck by that. And he, you know, he says, "You know, It's clear, David, that you are God's anointed. Just promise me, David, that when you become king, that you will protect my household. And David makes a vow, and he promises to Saul that he'll protect his house. Okay? There's another scene where David is with his best friend, Jonathan, who's Saul's son. They grew up in the palace together. I mean, they were best friends in the world. And um, countless sermons, seminars, articles, books have been written about friendship based on David and Jonathan's friendship. Okay, and David and Jonathan even make this covenant with each other where David says, listen, Jonathan, I promise you that I am going to always protect your descendants. I am going to protect your children. I will protect your house. I will protect your name. I will always honor you, Jonathan. So those, those are two really big kind of covenants that David made about Saul and his household and his descendants, okay? Okay. So, now, where we pick up, finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, as far as David knows, there's nobody left to protect. There's nobody left in Saul's and Jonathan's house. That's why he says this in chapter 9, verse 1. David says, I don't know where he is at this point, but he just is saying, is there anybody out there left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Okay, okay. Um, he wants to know if there's somebody out of that house, out of that lineage, um, that he can honor, that he can respect, that he can show his undying love for Jonathan to. You see that? He's not motivated by legalities or formalities. He says, uh, it, he, what he, when he says this about, um, is there anybody for Jonathan's sake that I can honor? He's showing that he's being stirred by this deep love for his friend Jonathan. Okay? So the story goes on in verse 2. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mechir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, Lodabar was like one of the worst slums, you know, ever in the history of the world. You got to just, that's an important thing, I think. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mechir, the son of uh, Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage Can you imagine how nervous Mephibosheth was at this point? Um, You know, he's heard that the king wants him in Jerusalem, and he knows the name of the game, execution for any... Because he was a direct line of Saul, right? He knows, oh my goodness, David has gone out and he's searched for any descendants of Saul. He's found me here in this slum, and now my poor pitiful life is about to end in execution, right? That's why he's got me coming to Jerusalem, okay? But anyway... Uh, You know that's what he's thinking. Um, And he fell on his face, he paid homage, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. That's the first time he says it, okay? And he paid homage, and he said, This is Mephibosheth. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I've given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. That's second time, okay? Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, according to all that my, the, my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at, the David, ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. There you go, third time. Just, just so you know <laughs> that he gets to eat at the king's table all the time. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table, for those of us who are slow to understand. Um, And now he was lame in both feet. It's just a fantastic story. And it's, and honestly, I remember hearing R.C. Sproul teach on this and I thought, I'm sure we talked about this one day in seminary, but I missed it. And I don't know why people don't talk about this guy all the time, because um, it's just a great story. And it's, it would be easy for us to think of this as just this isolated story of one man's love for another person, just this isolated story Um, this rags-to-riches story about how this man was rescued from obscure, deep poverty and and invited to eat at the king's table and live in the king's palace, right? It's just a fantastic, it's just an unbelievable story here. I mean, Disney couldn't come up with something this great. They'd crush this, by the way, if they made a movie out of it. But it's just, it's unbelievable, okay? But what I want you to see this morning is that this story speaks to you and I and our salvation to the nth degree, to the fullest degree. Because who in this room does not walk with a limp? Who in this room is not crippled in their heart? Who in this room, including the preacher, is not lame in their soul? You you're with me on this? Like, that, you know, the, the author tells us this story because he really wants us to see why in the world does David pay attention to this guy. The only reason at all that David is concerned about Mephibosheth at all is because he loved Jonathan. That's the only reason Mephibosheth is getting brought up here. There's no reason for David, the king, to stoop and condescend himself and go find this guy in the slums and bring him to eat at his table always, right? The author wants us to feel that, But the question of all questions is why in the world would God, the creator of this universe, the king of this universe, ever stoop and condescend to save any one of us? Why would he do that? And the the New Testament's got an amazing answer. And this really is my only point this morning. And it's this. Your salvation, my salvation, it is... Through Christ it is by Christ it is for Christ it is all about Jesus and the only reason that God stoops and condescends to save any of us is because of his great love for his only begotten son Jesus that's why that's the only reason any of us get in the only reason that Mephibosheth is registering on the radar is because David loved Jonathan And you know that that speaks to our salvation in the greatest of ways. In the the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father in front of the disciples, and he's thanking the Father for those that he has given him. And he starts to pray for the preservation of his sheep and that nobody will snatch his sheep out of his hands because he knows that his sheep are those that the Father has given him. You with me on that? That we, we tend to think rightly that, that our salvation, like if you're here this morning and, and you're a Christian, you rightly think and believe that your salvation is God's gift to you. And it is that. And I can come back in a few weeks and we'll preach a great sermon on that alone. All right? But we got to make sure that we don't overlook The fact that your salvation and my salvation is primarily a gift that the father gives to his son you you see what i'm saying there it's unbelievable so that as isaiah 53 says we know that isaiah 53 is fully applied to jesus it's and it talks about how the many will be made righteous so that he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied That he will see the agony of his soul and be satisfied. The picture that you get there is that every time somebody put, maybe this morning, somebody's going to put their trust in Christ for the first time, right? Or maybe somebody here this morning is just going to be really renewed in their faith as we're worshiping, looking at the word, as we go to the table, and it's like the the son sees that, and any time that that happens, he's satisfied, he's satisfied. The angels rejoice. The son rejoices. It's like in Hebrews where it just says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know what that joy is? Every time somebody comes to faith in Christ. Every time the father draws somebody to the son, the son, the angels, everybody rejoices. He sees the travail of his soul and he is satisfied. I I just think that's one of the most (laughs) well-spun phrases I've ever heard. And, um, you know, I tell you what, just nothing makes me cry like military reunion videos, right? When somebody's, like, been out on service, been on tour, and they come back, the family doesn't know that, like, the the spouse or the dad or the mom is about to show up and they it kills me every time okay the other ones that really get me is like the the college acceptance videos that that are out there right and um you know you've got this child you've got this parent they're waiting to see am i going to get into college whatever it is they've worked their tails off they've worked their fingers to the bone the parents have probably paid all kind of money you know in schooling and tutoring and just all kinds of the agony of it and you just when they find out that they, it's like they saw it was all worth it. Like all the trial, all the suffering, all the difference. Again, can you imagine what it's like every time the, somebody puts their trust in Christ? The, the reaction of the son. Um, Jesus, you know, he dies unmarried and he dies childless. And, and in Isaiah 53, what that actually is, it's like this lament of this, of this person who dies with no descendants, who, who, as Isaiah 53 says, he was cut off from the land of the living. Um, Who's gonna declare his generation? And it's complaining about this one who dies with no descendants. But what this is teaching us is that God gives him children. God gives him descendants. Every one of us in this room who's ever put their trust in Christ, who've who've united themselves to Jesus by faith, God gives him children. Um, David... David is not moved by any virtue that he sees in Mephibosheth. He's not moved by any love for Mephibosheth. He's moved because of his love for Jonathan. Is there anybody out there that I can honor, that I can love for the sake of Jonathan? And this is absolutely typical of our redemption. God honors Christ by giving Christ us, we who are crippled, invited to the king's table every day as honored guests. The heart of the passage is verse seven. I love that David uses his name, right? He knows that he's got a name and he uses it, Mephibosheth, right? Recognizes him as, a, can you imagine how humanizing and dignifying that was for him to hear his name come from the king? You know it brought relief. And not only is Mephibosheth spared the sword. But he 's invited to live in David's house and not live in David's house under house arrest or some obscure corner, like in the broom closet or something like that, but he's got access to the king's table every day. He's not invited into the palace to grovel like a servant and kiss the ring every day. You know, oh, I'm not worthy right. I just think about the pitiful ways I tend to approach God most of the time. right? That's not what he's invited to do. It's four times he wants to make sure we understand. He's invited to the king's table every day. And, and you know that Mephibosheth is thinking, he's about to kill me. I'm about to be executed. He had no idea that he was actually brought in to be the target of David's love. Um, it's so good. And David isn't just trying to fulfill the minimum. You know how, maybe, maybe you're not like me, but I can tell you how Kevin Teasley is. I'm often in deals like this. I'm thinking, what's the minimum I can do to get away with this? You know, like, what's the minimum requirement so that I can, like, meet the... David's not like that at all. He goes beyond any bare requirement. He heaps grace upon grace on Mephibosheth. Doesn't just spare his life, but heaps goodness on him. Doesn't just protect his life, he restores the in all the inheritance. Mephibosheth is never... I mean, get this in your head. You gotta, he's never, ever gonna face destitution again. Never. Um... It's just an amazing analogy. It makes me think about Romans 8, when Paul just says, listen, God didn't spare his own son for you. What makes you think he's not going to graciously give, give you everything else you need? He didn't spare his son for you. Like, now, why do you think he's going to not give you what you need? Um, I, I just love, it's just an amazing analogy. Mephibosheth in the Old Testament, we as Christians in the New Testament, David, here is showing love for his enemy again makes me think paul and romans that while while we were yet god while we were yet enemies god showed his love for us in this that he sent his son he reconciled us to himself while we were his enemies david's showing love to his enemy right here and there's just there's all kind of things to point out there's a probably a million applications we could make here but if you're here this morning and you've put your trust in christ you you have access to the very family of God. You're brought into the very house of God, the very house of the king, because of the father's love for the son. You know how secure that makes it? Like, this is just like taking you out of the equation right there, right? And I bet it took, I bet it took Mephibosheth probably a while to live into this, you know what I mean? I bet, it, you know, to like really think, is, when's David gonna pull the rug out from under me here? You know what I mean? And um, but I bet, I bet it dawn, when it would dawn on him, I bet he just, I think I can just see these scenes of, of people saying, Mephibosheth, you know he doesn't really love you. He doesn't, he's not really, and I, I bet he got pr- con- pretty convinced, David will do anything for me. But it's because of his love for my dad, right? That, he got it. Um, the, the other thing that, and this is what drove me as a campus minister for years. Because the picture you get as you read through the scriptures is that God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, has gone out into the highways and the byways of this world, to the Tennessee Techs of this world, the Wake Forests of this world, the Clarksville Tennessees of the world, the Cookville Tennessees, right? He's gone to college campuses all over the place. And you know what he's done is he's chosen not the wise and the brilliant and the influential and the strong and the mighty, but he's chosen us. (laughs) He's chosen us who are crippled, right? To be his children, to be heirs with Christ, joint heirs with God and to have a seat at the table every day um, adopted us, cripples like us, to be his sons and daughters. And I'm gonna tell you this, ever since I heard R.C. Sproul that day in Charlotte, North Carolina, talk about this passage, um, I've never come to the Lord's table the same. Every time I come to the Lord's table, I think about this. I am not worthy, and the only reason I'm invited in is because of the Son that's our ticket in, and that's what makes us worthy when we come to this table. I can't get over the fact, and I hope it hits you this morning too, that the amazing, astonishing fact that you and I get to be invited to the king's table, and that's where we're moving uh, here in this worship service. Um, You know, there really is something amazingly intimate about sitting at someone's table um, I, tell, I do fundraising So I travel the country Talk to churches I talk to donors All over the place There's a guy in Greenville South Carolina That I've been getting to know I've eaten at Starbucks or, And had coffee And you know and At Starbucks galore With this guy You know I've been to restaurants With this guy And finally Just a few weeks ago He invited me to eat dinner At his house With his wife Okay And um, And one of the things He said to me And he and his wife Put on a spread It was amazing and, um, and it was such an incredible evening. And, um, and what I felt the whole time is he wanted me to feel honored. And he actually said this to me. I'd never heard somebody spin the phrase like this, but he looked at me and he said, Kevin, I'm just so glad to have your feet underneath my table. Like he wanted me to feel honored and I felt honored. It's, it's an incredibly intimate thing to have fellow, like I got a lot of friends that I would say I'm kind of close to, but I've never had them to my house. I've even had a lot of friends that I've had in my house, but I've never had them sit down at my table. Heck, when my wife and I, when we want to have go do something with somebody, we take them out. You don't know why? Because it's easier, right? But it's something incredibly intimate and awesome when somebody has you in their house and they prepare a meal for you. And I just want you to see that Jesus is not just inviting you into His house, but He's inviting you to His table. He's inviting you to put your feet under His table. And guess what? He's the host, and he is serving you, and he, he wants you to know the honor of that. I mean, Mephibosheth in the household of the king, okay? Christians in the household of Christ. Cripples together, no rights to sonship, no claims to be at the table. Um, and we need to remember that as we come to the Lord's table. Jesus is supremely. The apple of God's eye. Can you imagine the love that the father... I've got three children. My oldest is 22 now. I've only held her in my arms for 22 years. Can you imagine eternity? Right? Can you imagine the love that the father has for his son? And it's because of the father's great love for the son that you and I are invited to this table this morning. Um... The phrase, in Christ, is on almost every New Testament page. Almost every one of them. And as long as you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, you've got a seat at the table. And you're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. You are connected to him and all that love that the Father has for the Son is transported to you. I mean, that is the deal of the century. That's the deal of eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, goodness, I get so worked up thinking about this. Um, and it's, it's, it is one of the most beautiful, precious motifs in, in all of Scripture, um, in all of the world. And, and it's beautiful, because it's true. And I pray that you, by your spirit, through your word, um, through this sacrament, as we go to the table, as we go to your table, I pray that the truth, the beauty, the power of that even, uh, would work its way into our hearts and into our souls, and that it would transform us. I pray it uh, in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we're going to celebrate what the Lord has done for us. Um, we're we're, not, we're, not, we're going to celebrate it. We're going to remember it. You know, we're going to meditate on it, concentrate on it. And um, I, I really think that one of the astonishing things about coming to the Lord's table is that there's power in this. And that in a mystical, fantastic way, I mean, Jesus says when you come by faith and you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, that he promises to dwell with us in a unique way that is powerful and it is transformable, tran- transforming, transformative. And so let's celebrate, let's eat, let's drink, let's remember. Um, on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Take and eat. And after he had done that, he gave thanks and given thanks He took the cup and he said this cup is the blood of the new covenant which has been shed for the forgiveness of sins drink from it all of you um this table is um is not for anybody here who thinks that you're worthy in and of themselves uh mephibosheth knew he had no rights no claims to be there but david said mephibosheth come